revolution is not being televised, but it is being digitized right here on Digital Village. On 90.7 FM KPFK. I'm Rick Allen. And I'm Brittany Gallagher. Since the start of the COVID-19 pandemic, sports fans have been eager for live sports to return. In the second half of the show, Leilani Albano interviews Emory University epidemiologist Zach Benny about how and when we'll see live sports again. But first, there's a lot going on. 2020 has been an eventful year. The aforementioned pandemic, worldwide protests against police brutality and racism, and of course, climate change has not gone away. I'm joined by the Bipartisan Policy Center's Dr. Addison Colleen Stark to talk about direct air capture a technology that could play an important part in helping humanity meet the climate goals set out by the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. Climate change has not gone away, even though the past couple of months have simultaneously felt like a couple of seconds and a couple of decades. What we're talking about when we're dealing with climate change is a problem that is something we need to build up to and solve over the timescales of decades. And one of the challenges we realize is we are running short on time. As we look at some of the data we get and the recommendations from things like the IPCC and other international scientific bodies, we need to be on a track to be able to decarbonize our entire economy by mid-century if we hope to keep climate change below two degrees Celsius. And that means we need to use a portfolio of solutions to address that As we've talked about before, it's really hard to conceive of a purely wind and solar solution to this. Maybe you can imagine ways to do that for the grid if you include really great developments in storage. But there are other emissions that are fundamentally very hard to decarbonize. Think about things like long-haul flight. There's no clear way how you fly from L.A. to New York or L.A. to Tokyo without having jet fuel available. And it's very hard to imagine getting enough scale in biojet type solutions to be able to decarbonize that. Additionally, if you look at industrial emissions, things like cement production and steel production are very high emitters of CO2 and potentially difficult to decarbonize using traditional approaches. So you run into this situation where, let alone all of the other industrial emissions that are much more heterogeneous, small, different production approaches that emit a lot of CO2 and might not be so readily accessible with uh, carbon capture at the point source. So we run into this challenge where we're going to have a lot of diffuse emissions like long-haul flight and some hard-to-decarbonize technologies in industry. And what we need to do is think about things like carbon dioxide removal, or in particular, thinking about direct air capture of CO2 from the atmosphere, removing it and then sequestering it underground. This is distinct from what some folks talk about in natural climate solutions, where you may have read that people want to grow trees and use that as a way to capture existing CO2 in the atmosphere. However, that runs into a particular challenge because it does not directly take the previously emitted CO2 that's up in the atmosphere and return it to the geosphere. We need to think about technological solutions to remove 
CO2 and to not only remove the emissions that are occurring, but also think about removing the emissions that have occurred previously. And that's an important piece of what this technology can enable. Why do you think more people are talking about direct air capture now? What role does it play in decarbonizing our economy and actually hitting those climate goals? As I mentioned, but I think it bears a little more discussion, is the fact that just if we started tomorrow emitting zero CO2, if we had a fully decarbonized economy, we still have to deal with the fact that we have the accumulated emissions of the past century that are up in the atmosphere, that we are still going to realize a substantial impact from climate change. So that's a critical point that we not only have to stop our current emissions, but we have to start thinking about having not only a net neutral economy, but a net negative net negative CO2 emitting economy if we hope to return the Earth system back to pre-industrial levels. Now, this is something that will play out for many, many decades we're talking about over the next couple of centuries. However, we do need to be able to develop the technology now to enable future generations to continue the work that we're starting in cleaning up after our industrial activity as a race, as a species. There's obviously a line here with regards to direct air capture. A lot of people are worried that it's a technology that will allow fossil fuels to continue. And you mentioned that there are some things that are are quite hard to decarbonize, like long distance flights and in certain industries. Can you talk a little more about the balance that needs to be met there and, and really that worry that fossil fuels will just keep piggybacking off of this because of direct air capture? Brittany, you have a really good point there. And the key thing is no one technology in addressing climate change is a silver bullet particularly direct air capture. There are many more efficient, more cost-effective ways to decarbonize certain activities like transportation. Right now, it's very clear that there's a lot of progress going on in the development of electric vehicles or hydrogen as a transportation fuel. There are better ways to decarbonize certain industrial processes like directly capturing the CO2 emitted at a steel facility and putting it down. However, what it really means is that we need to have a portfolio approach, that we need to have the technologies being developed to directly decarbonize our economic activity, but we do need to invest in the development of this technology as a way to decarbonize and remove previous emissions. And you're right that there is the challenge that People might use this as an opportunity to continue emitting activities, but it's something that will be a political solution and policy solutions around that. However, we do know we need to innovate and develop more cost-effective ways to directly capture CO2. This dovetails into the next question then, because some of the first commercial applications of direct air capture are for what is called enhanced oil recovery. Could you talk about what that means? If you look a little further into direct air capture, you'll notice that some of the first companies to invest in this are actually oil companies like Occidental Petroleum. And they're looking at direct air capture 
and, and they're investing in some of the companies that are developing direct air capture, like carbon engineering, and looking to use these technologies to produce the CO2 they need to perform enhanced oil recovery or essentially to produce more petroleum out of used wells. Now, this is important for a couple of reasons, and there's a little bit of nuance to it. Number one, this is an important first market for the development of this technology. Today, if we look at the cost of directly capturing CO2 from the atmosphere, it's very, very expensive because we have not been able to start to deploy the technology and take advantage of the learning by doing. So if you look at how the cost of solar has progressed over the past couple of decades, we've been able to drive down solar costs not just because of research, but also because of learning by deploying and building new and constantly iterating. We need to start that process for direct air capture technology. And so we need to think about these first market uses like petroleum production as a first beachhead market that is willing to pay more for the CO2 than say what we really need it ultimately to be, which is a technology which can remove CO2 at very low sub $100 a ton type prices. Now there is also a environmental benefit here if you look at some analyses that have been done by environmental organizations like the World Resources Institute, they estimate that oil produced using direct air capture is going to essentially be two-thirds decarbonized. So essentially, per barrel of oil produced, it will only have the carbon intensity of one-third of what it would. So this is an interim decarbonized barrel of oil. It's not the end game. And ultimately, we need to be thinking about how we produce certain petroleum products in a decarbonized way, because we'll always have some role for hydrocarbons, whether it be for fuels like jet fuel or for making materials. Ultimately, the end game needs to be seen as reversing the climate change and the CO2 emissions that we've done for the past hundred years, but we need these first markets to drive down the cost. So how do we, with that in mind, like we need to start somewhere, this is where we're starting. How do we in 20, 30 years make sure this is not preventing us from actually moving away from petroleum or away from oil in general? And I think the ultimate answer there, Brittany, is we need to find a way to push for broad climate legislation, climate policy, that leverages this type of innovation, the development of these new technologies, but ultimately we need to have a clear goal to decarbonize entirely. We need to have an economy-wide plan for decarbonization that includes regulation of CO2 emissions, whether it be through price signal like tax or cap and trade or some sort of other mechanism like a clean energy or clean production standards for industrial products. Those are the big political questions that need to be answered very soon. Innovation will help to drive down the costs of doing this type of work, but ultimately we need to find a path towards a bipartisan political agreement that solves this problem. And I have confidence that we can do that given how there is a, a continual focus among the younger generations, the millennials and Gen Z, that this is a problem that it's time to solve. 
That was the Bipartisan Policy Center's Dr. Addison Colleen Stark on direct air capture and how that could play an important part in helping humanity meet the goals set out by the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. Let's remind everyone that you're listening to Digital Village on 90.7 FM KPFK. Ever since the COVID-19 outbreak, eager fans have been waiting for months for major sports to return. They are finally coming back. The big four leagues are slated to restart their seasons, beginning with basketball in July, followed by baseball, hockey, and football. But is the U.S. ready? With us to discuss sports during the pandemic is Zach Binney, epidemiologist with Emory University. He is speaking with Digital Village reporter Leilani Albano. There's been a lot of clamor around sports making a comeback during the pandemic. What place does it have in our lives, and should it be a priority? I think that's a great question, and when you ask that, we have to think about what we mean by sports coming back. So every step that we take back towards normality has a risk and a benefit associated with it. When we think about bringing sports back, first we have to ask ourselves, what's really the benefit? And as a sports fan myself, I would argue that there's a pretty big benefit, even in terms of professional sports, in terms of psychological benefits for the population, social benefits, having something to do and be able to watch on TV and talk about and think about when you're mostly staying at home. It does have some economic benefits as well, obviously, for the players and the league. You know, those teams don't just employ players. They employ a lot of people in the front office and other areas like that. So there's something to be said for those benefits. But we need to make sure that the risk doesn't outweigh the benefits that are offered. That's why I've been advocating for bringing back sports without fans. I think there's no question that adding fans to the equation only adds some money from gate revenues and adds a whole lot of risk because you're putting a whole bunch of people together in one area, thousands or tens of thousands of people in one spot. And that, especially if it's an indoor stadium of any kind or even an outdoor stadium with indoor concourses, adds an awful lot of risk that I don't think is worth it. But when you talk about bringing sports back without fans, you know, if it can be done safely through either centralizing and sequestering players or uh, doing regular testing, like daily testing of staff and players like the NBA and NHL are talking about, then I think it can probably be brought back without too much danger to the athletes, the support staff, the coaches, and public health. I don't think anybody is arguing that we need to bring back sports. We all recognize that the world would continue to spin if sports didn't come back. We're arguing, or at least I'm arguing, the benefits will outweigh the risks if you can bring sports back with a responsible enough plan that protects the public's health. I have seen plans that do not do that, and I have spoken out against them. And I have seen plans that I think in my professional estimation and thoughts of my infectious disease colleague pose a fairly small risk to public health. So when you talk about that and you weigh it against the benefits, you have to make an informed decision about whether those sports should come back. Well, specific to this time with several states reopening and there's fears of reinfection or infection and thousands of people marching in the streets, how wise is it to bring sports back now? When the pandemic first started, my argument was always before we bring sports back, we have to get the pandemic under control in the United States. And I thought that that would look something like Taiwan or South Korea, where there are very few new cases happening in the population. We did not have a national plan to achieve that. 
there were a lot of roadblocks from a combination of unexpected changes in bureaucracy and political incompetence and cronyism. And whatever the reason, we did not have a very good response to the pandemic. I don't think anybody independent would argue otherwise. We seem to have lost patience, and that definitely worries me and my colleagues that where we are now is where we seem to be likely to stay stuck. Maybe things will get a little bit better, especially as we improve testing and maybe in the summer. But as we approach the fall and as people back off of social distancing, I know all of my colleagues and myself, we're very afraid of what's going to come in the next coming months. But then the counter argument to that, if you take it a step further, is then when can sports come back? If this is as good as it gets, then should we try to bring sports back now if we still think it can be done with minimal risk to public health? And that's the question that has to be answered. But I think it's probably worth it to try. What is it about sports, basketball, football, MMA, that makes it so risky, not only to athletes, but to fans? Anytime you get people together, especially for indoor sports like basketball and MMA, there is the risk of the virus transmitting from one person to another. So you never want to bring people together when the risk of that does not outweigh the benefit, especially sports like basketball and MMA, where you are in close proximity in MMA to one other person and basketball to 10 when you're actually playing the sport. That raises the risk of transmission. Football is a lot of players on the field and a lot of players on a team. But actually, interestingly, because they're wearing helmets and maybe you could install face guards on those helmets. I know the NFL is working with Oakley, the sunglass company, right now on that. They may actually have an advantage relative to other contact sports here weirdly enough. But other than the fact that you are in close proximity to each other, breathing hard, I don't think there's any more risk to sports than a typical workplace. So the risk is somewhat higher. But then again, if you're testing everybody daily, the idea is that nobody will be within the league sphere, not necessarily a bubble, but being with people within the league for long enough to spread the virus to a large number of people and have an explosive outbreak. That's the theory behind this sequestering to prevent the virus from getting in in the first place and daily testing to stop it from spreading if it does. Now, Taiwan was the first country to introduce professional baseball back during the pandemic. How did they make it happen? The way that Taiwan made it happen is they reaped the benefits of what they sowed. They had a very early and aggressive response to COVID-19, partially because they had experience with a very similar virus called SARS, Sudden Acute Respiratory Syndrome, back in 2003. So Taiwan was prepared. They activated their plan. They did it early. They did it aggressively. And they never saw too many cases. And they got the number of cases down to, for a while, single digits in a population of over 20 million people. I I can't imagine achieving anything like that in the United States right now. We just don't have as sophisticated a response. So because they were able to do that and stop the virus from getting out of control, that's why they were able to bring sports back. We didn't do that. And so now, if we can bring sports back, we have to do a lot more than Taiwan does in order to achieve the same level of risk. So Taiwan doesn't test everybody every day because there just isn't enough virus to require that. There are reports though that Taiwan has allowed up to a thousand people to attend baseball games. It seems like whatever they're doing is dependent on the wider infection rates in the country. That's exactly right. As Dr. Fauci has said many times here, the virus sets our time scale. 
and we can impact the virus, but that's really what determines what can be brought back when. If you have single-digit numbers of cases in a population of 20 million, then putting a 1,000 people together in a baseball stadium may not carry that much risk. If you get unlucky and one of those people happens to be infected, you've also got a robust testing, tracing, and isolation program. So you can hopefully nip any outbreak that does occur in the bud. Whereas if you took a 1,000 people here in the United States and you put them together in a stadium, the chances are very good right now that several of them would be infected. And most places don't have the infrastructure to test and contact trace everybody at a sporting event. That's not something that we can afford to do. Taiwan's actions let them do that. There's nothing magical. It was elbow grease that they put in and we didn't. And so they get the rewards of their hard work. And now we have South Korea, which also restarted their professional baseball season, but they don't have fans. Can you tell us about that? That's right. So I'd say a couple of things about that. South Korea has had a very, very good response. Maybe not quite as good as Taiwan. They have had a couple of outbreaks after the initial one that was spread by uh, people at a large church, but they have really nipped those in the bud with their testing and tracing programs and haven't let them get out of control. But I think that they're still feeling very wary. They have more cases than Taiwan, so they're being a little more careful. And it's really up to each country's national, state, or local health authorities to determine what is and is not allowed in various areas. Reasonable people can reach different conclusions, and they're also not in the exact same situation. So I'm not surprised by that in the least. Now, there are some countries that say if there is an infection among the players that they may self-quarantine them, but they will not shut down the season. What do you think is the best response if there is an infection among teammates? I'll focus on the United States because every country is going to have a different level of risk tolerance, also a different baseline risk of someone becoming sick based on the number of cases in the population. In some areas, if your risk tolerance is low, you may say, okay, one case, we shut it down. In other areas, if your risk tolerance is a little bit higher, maybe because you didn't have as bad of an outbreak as first and you haven't seen how bad it can get, maybe you would say, we'll allow a couple of cases. As far as the U.S. goes, there are too many cases to say, if there's one case in a league, we shut the league down. If that's going to be your level, then don't restart because you're going to shut down almost immediately. There's no point. You have to expect sporadic cases from players picking it up unless they're in a totally hermetically sealed bubble, which nobody is really doing. You have to expect that people will get sick. And that's why I think daily testing is so important to be able to identify uh, as soon as possible after somebody gets sick and isolate them so they can't spread the virus to others. When would you cut it off? If you saw a cluster of cases, like three or four in rapid succession on one team, that team would need to shut it down. If you saw two or three teams with those clusters at the same time in a league, that's when the league would have to shut down. It's really hard to give exact numbers, but that's kind of generally how I'm thinking about it. It's one thing to talk about sports coming back, but do we really need a live audience? Are huge stadium events a thing of the past? We should not have fans and certainly not huge stadium events until we have a vaccine. And that vaccine is widely administered. I've always said that that opinion has never changed. The most dangerous thing you can do is get a lot of people together indoors. That is the single most dangerous thing we can do right now. So indoor sporting events, outdoor sporting events where people spend time together on concourses and bathrooms, concerts, conventions, all of them. 
no-go until we have a vaccine. That is just begging for a super-spreading event that could collapse a medical and public health system and result in large numbers of deaths. I would rather open 100 restaurants than have one convention or sporting event. Considering the fact that there are so many people who still don't have access to mass testing or there are massive inequalities between testing being conducted in white communities and communities of color, is it ethical? Depends on a few things. Epidemiologists love what we call counterfactuals, which is thinking about if one thing changed, how does another thing change? What you have to ask yourself when you ask about teams taking tests away is if we had an essentially infinite supply of tests, which we don't yet, then teams could take them away and test everybody every day with impunity, and we wouldn't really care as long as they were paying for the tests, right? But can teams invest money and generate more tests than would have otherwise existed and donate some of those tests to the community while keeping some for themselves. If you can do that, if money is the thing that's stopping more tests from being made, then if you can invest in the tests and the laboratory capacity and the personnel to collect the samples and do the tests and actually make a world with more tests than there otherwise would have been, then there's no ethical concern to me. I'll have to leave it to smarter people than me to say whether any given plan at any given time satisfies those criteria. But it's not as simple as just saying we don't have enough tests. Sports leagues shouldn't be doing tests. It depends on where those tests are coming from. And if they're being newly generated from new money and infrastructure investments from leagues, then there's not necessarily a problem. Thanks so much for joining the show. Thank you very much, Leilani. That was Emory University epidemiologist Zach Binney. He was speaking with Digital Village reporter Leilani Albano. Thanks, Leilani. And until we have live sports back, there's always Jell's Marble Runs and Marble League 2020. And if you don't know what that is, I encourage you to Google it. We also covered direct air capture with Dr. Addison Colleen Stark and how that could be a valuable tool in our combating climate change arsenal. That's it for this week's edition of Digital Village. We'll get through this. I'm Brittany Gallagher at In a Quantum World. You can hear this episode again by subscribing to our podcast or going to kpfk.org, clicking audio archives and search for Digital Village. You can also follow us on all things social using at Digital V Radio or find out more at digitalvillage.org. KPFK needs your support and you can donate to keep glorious independent listener-sponsored radio going here at KPFK. Go to kpfk.org forward slash pledge. Thanks for listening to Digital Village. I'm Rick Allen, and we'll we'll see see you online. online.